So as per the tradition of a CU, we have to finish the last part of this tractate mm. at the dinner table. Oh, I, I haven't been doing it in the past. CU oh. meme, so. <laughs> what we do is we read the last <coughs> section of the last Mishnah and the last section of the last discussion, <coughs> discussion on that Mishnah, which is the Gemara. Okay, so the last part of the last Mishnah goes like this. <coughs> the Mishnah lists more things that ceased. From the time when Rabbi Meir died, those who relate parables ceased. From the time mm -hmm. when Ben Azai died, the diligence ceased. From the time when Ben Zoma died, the exegetists ceased. From the time when Rabbi Akiva died, the honor of the Torah ceased. From the time when Rabbi Hanina Ben Dosa died, the men of the men of wondrous action ceased. From the time when Rabbi Yosef the Small died, the pious were no more. And why was he called the Small? Because he was the smallest of the pious. From the time when Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakai died, the glory of wisdom ceased. From the time when Rabban Gamliel the Elder died, the honor of the Torah ceased. And purity and asceticism died. From the time when Rabbi Yishmael ben Pavi died, the glory of the priesthood ceased. And from the time when Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi died, humility and fear of sin ceased. Super downer. Sad face. <laughs> and then, the Gemara discusses all of those. And a lot of times tells you what some of them mean. Because in the beginning, it just... It even tells you about the rabbis. Yeah. All of them. Very great men. It ends really interestingly, though. So we'll just read the last couple lines. So it's commenting on the section of the Mishnah that said, When Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi died, humility and fear of sin ceased. And it says that Rav Yosef said to the Tana who reviewed the Mishnah, he said, do not teach that humility ceased, for there is still one who is humble, namely me. <laughs> Rav Nachman similarly said to the Tana who reviewed the Mishnah, do not, fear that, do not teach that fear of sin ceased, for there is still one who fears sin, namely me. <laughs> That's such a cool way to end. Okay, but... There, it does raise the question. How could they say that in humility? It sounds like kind of an arrogant thing to say. And if there's anything we learned in Sota, it's that arrogance is really bad. Really, really bad. So, can I answer a question with a question? Are you going to answer my question? No. <laughs> I mean, what's your question? No, never mind. No. Well, how can Moshe write that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth? Right. That's not a good question. Torah. That's not a good question. That's a good question. Yeah. There's okay. There's a little. <laughs> there's two opinions here about how these men could say this. There's there's more opinions than that, but one opinion <laughs> is just it's just hilarious because the Hebrew is the Ika Ana. When they say there's me, they say the Ika Ana. There's Ana. And so there's a tradition that there was actually a guy named Anna who lived in a different city and he had humility and fear of sin. They're saying, don't say there's no humility left because there's Anna, that guy named Anna. Very <coughs> unlikely. Sounds spurious. It's a little spurious because the word definitely means you know, me or I. So, read, um, does commentary say, um, that you gotta know what 
humility really is. Because some people think humility is um, self-degradation or putting yourself down, etc. Make yourself appear as small as possible. And it's not true. Humility is having a correct perspective on yourself. Correct, having an accurate view of yourself, both of your weaknesses and your strengths. And so these men, in complete humility, and just like Moshe Rabbeinu, were able to say, I'm humble, and to say, I have fear of sin, because they were able to judge themselves correctly. And they had to say it, because if they didn't say it, it's a real downer way to finish the tractate, because it seems like all the things that we kind of strive after ceased 2,000 years ago. And there'd be no reason to kind of strive after those things anymore, or even to have people to look up to anymore. Because nobody has humility, nobody has fear of sin, etc. But they're saying there still exists people who have these traits. I'm one of them. Objectively. They're still. They're, yeah. They're still. They're still them. Um, so, that idea of judging ourselves properly, and that being the road to humility, uh, brings us to a question about, in the Torah, why does the section of the Nazarite come after the section of the Sota? It's a, it's a pretty popular question, because right after it discusses the unfaithful wife, it discusses the man who takes a vow saying he'll never drink any great products or have any grapes or anything. So why did it juxtapose those two positions? It says, um, the Talmud kind of makes this situation that there's a sota gets seen, you know, acting immodestly, and uh, a man sees her and is like, well, I should never have wine because I don't want to make that mistake, and I know wine inhibits my judgment. And so that's kind of the idea. Here, here. Right. Oh. <laughs> so, but the way the Talmud phrases it in this tractate is pretty specific. So it says that Rav answers this question by saying, a person who sees a sota in her disgrace should, should hold back from wine. And we just know that he's not saying that he should become a Nazarite because in the previous tractate, Tractate Nazir, we learned to become an Azurite is pretty much sinful. You're not supposed to willfully deny yourself pleasures that aren't prohibited by the Torah unless it's absolutely necessary. And so to just become an Azurite would never be recommended by the sages. And so the question is, what does he mean? What's the real teaching here? When you see a Sota in her disgrace, you should limit, your, you should limit yourself from wine. The idea is, and it's brought down by the Baal Shem Tov. And it's a very popular idea, is that divine providence is specific for everyone. So God controls not just the big things, but all the little things as well. And so God controlled it so that you would see the Sota mess up. Or that you would see the Sota in the temple being publicly disgraced. And since you're actually seeing it, you know that God intended for you to see it. And if God intended you to see it, then there must be a lesson for you. And so Rav is saying, when you see a sota in disgrace, you need to examine your own life and see 
maybe you need to stay away from wine because maybe you have some immodesty problems. Maybe you have some problems with um, dealing with your own judgment, stuff like that. That's what Boston Girl says. That's the, uh, that's the reason that they're juxtaposed. Right, so I will. I will go ahead and tell. Yeah, I'll go ahead and tell you the deal. Is that also going to be my next thing? No, it's good. Great good segue. <laughs> we need my to know someone just the basic halakha of like what what the deal is about that. So here's like very bare bones of what was discussed here. Is that a man, a husband, tells his wife in front of two witnesses. I don't want you to seclude yourself with a, a specific man, like a named person, Jack or something like that. John Doe. Yeah, John Doe. Yokanan Doe. Yokanan Doe. And so she's not a Sota at that point, of course. She's only been warned in front of two witnesses. But then, if Two witnesses see her seclude herself with that specific person. They don't know what they did in seclusion, but they know they were in seclusion. Then she's a sota. And it means that the the relationship between her husband is on like a stalemate for the time being because they they don't know if she made if she was completely defiled in the seclusion or not. So they have to hang on and stuff. And um, she goes, her husband brings her to the temple to do the ritual, mm-hmm. if he wants. And um, the ritual, as we know, is in the Torah with the bitter waters and the dust and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Right, that's just the, the gruesome death that she gets. It's really bad. Um, if she's guilty, yeah, she, can, she get, dies a pretty awful death. A lot of messed up stuff happens. Um, but during the process, the priest doesn't tell her what will happen if she's innocent. He only emphasizes, if you're guilty, this is going to kill you. So don't do this flippantly. Like, if you know you're guilty, you should just, you should get out of this. Because if she confesses, she doesn't die. We don't kill people out of confession. We have to have two witnesses to kill people. So she would automatically be divorced if she confesses, but... We wouldn't, um, we wouldn't kill her. So if she wants to avoid death, she should just confess. But assuming she's not guilty, why would she go through this um, ritual? It's to prove her innocence. Because it's, it would definitively prove her innocence. So the wife has an option then. So if she is in fact innocent, she can decide to do this water ritual and it's very humiliating. There's a lot of things they do to actually humiliate her throughout the ritual. Or she could just say, I'm not going to drink the water. Not confess, but just, I'm not going to drink the water. And if she says that, then they're, they're just divorced, and she doesn't get the payment off of her ketubah. And it's just like, go marry another man. You're not in this relationship anymore. Um, if she goes ahead and drinks the water, and being innocent, then the Torah says she'll bear seed. The Talmud says 
what that means is she'll, um, if she was barren before, she'll have kids now. And if she was had having pain in childbirth before, she'll have no pain in childbirth now. And if she was bearing unattractive children before, <laughs> she'll bear beautiful children. And <laughs> <laughs> sit. Right, small talk. Right. But so, but still, it's a, like a significant reward. And the question comes down: Why would the sota be rewarded for going through the ritual if actually she's just completely in the wrong? Like, we're really just determining how wrong she was. You know, did she, 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 she was secluded. She was secluded against her husband's will. Right, against her husband's will, and being secluded with another man in the first place right. is an act of immodesty. So. This woman who did something immodest, and we're just going to determine: did she was she completely immodest? Like, did she did she have relations with the man or not? So why should she get rewarded with these possible perks if she didn't? Why should she have less pain in childbirth or have children, etc.? <laughs> You made it past that, right? <laughs> he just wanted you to stand up. It works. If you want me to use my seat, son, why would she do it? Yeah. It's a good question. <laughs> Here's the deal. She gets rewarded because the... When she secluded herself with another man, and then it came out in the open that she had done that. It's going to make her reevaluate her marriage, see if she wants to keep the marriage or not. Because it is up to her. She could say, I'm not going to drink. Or she could say, I'm going to get humiliated to prove my innocence. And because she valued the marriage enough to say, I choose humiliation to prove my innocence, hmm. then she gets rewarded for that. Because she obviously loves the marriage. She actually obviously loves her husband because she's choosing to be humiliated even though she's innocent. Kind of sounds like Judah and Tamar. Like Judah chooses to be humiliated sure. because he's, he values um, like being honest in that moment. And that's like redemptive for him. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually mentioned in the Sota. We go into that in, in, in detail. Okay. There's an analogy in the whole ritual of the Sota between God and his people, as with most of the Torah. <laughs> and the analogy is, of course, that God is the husband and the people of Israel are the wife, is the wife. And so, God's told us not to do certain things and to do certain things. And when we mess up, that's kind of like what the Sotah has done, going against the husband's will. And so this whole Sotah passage is, uh, is an analogy for when we make mistakes in life. So the husband brings uh, the wife to the, to the temple, she brings the bitter waters, and the bitter waters is kind of like a I, uh, the humiliation of Teshuvah. It's saying, saying I'm going to repent. And, um, and the whole process is to figure out 
were you completely defiled? That's the purpose of the bitter waters, right? Is to figure out if you were completely defiled or if you just secluded yourself and it was just a mistake, but that you were, you're still, you're still part of this marriage. You're still going to work for this marriage. And so when the Sota chooses humiliation, and that's like us choosing Teshuva, instead of just like, forget it, we're saying we're actually essentially innocent. We made a mistake. In the analogy, that's the seclusion. But essentially, we're innocent. We didn't go all the way. Right? Because it brings it brings down in the Tanya, the altar it brings down in the Tanya. We got two souls, the animal soul and the godly soul. And the godly soul doesn't sin. It, it stays completely out of sin. The animal souls is what causes the sin. So when a person makes a mistake, there's a part of him that is not making the mistake. There's a, there's a very small part of him that's not making the mistake. In Yiddish, it's called the Pintaliyit. It's the, it's the es- essential point that's connected to God and faithful to God at all times. And so, in the analogy, we might make a mistake might be uh, secluded, you know, with a, with another man, which is which is for us like we're doing a sin. But you can't say we go, went all the way ever, because there's still a part of us that could never go all the way. There's still a part inside us, a, a divine part. And so that's how it connects to Hanukkah, because it's the same story in Hanukkah. In that, after they win the war, they go into back into the temple, and they find that every single flask of oil has been defiled by the Greeks, except one. And there's this one flask of oil. Tradition says that Madisyahu actually hid away before anything happened, and it still bears the stamp of the high priest. And in the analogy, that's like there's still that one point that can never be defiled that still bears God's stamp on it. That's that's what they use to light the menorah, and it burns for eight, burns for eight nights, symbolizing it. It goes that once that one bit can extend and light up the entire person's life. Okay, that's how. It ex- uh, that's how it extends to Hanukkah. So did you get your question? <laughs> so she's, so her guilt, I guess I have too simple of an understanding. It's not a matter of she goes in and drinks the water, mm-hmm. she's guilty or she's not guilty. There's a whole lot more. They can't force her to drink the water. She, she still has to voluntarily drink water. But if But in that society she's getting paid a part she doesn't. She'll be divorced. Yeah. yeah. Which is not a good thing. Right. Sure. But right. right. she dies in that culture. Right. 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 So but still it's not like I mean in that society it doesn't have to mean that she's like it's not like that. There is remarriage. Like there definitely is remarriage in this world. That's like that's not a bad thing at all. So it's not that she's choosing but the she lesser form of death. Not as much as she would go through in the 
to use a modern example, this is very much like people who confess their guilt to cut a deal to get things better. Like oftentimes um, with a lot of in the banks, a lot of financial crimes that come out of things, um, different groups will get an opportunity where they will essentially accept a penalty in exchange for the agency or government, whatever, to not officially declare them guilty. So they haven't admitted that they did anything wrong, but they're accepting a penalty as like a part as a bargain. So like what Pete's saying is that by um, accepting the, the waters, she is like risking, in a sense, like the humiliation and the guilt. Like if she does, she says, oh, no, I'm not doing that, then there's still that doubt. Like did she do it, did she not do it? And it's up to you to decide if she did or didn't. But if she like goes through the process, it's a lot more, it's in that moment a lot more humiliating. It's actually a really good tie-in to, to repentance because uh, if you think about it long-term, it makes more sense to take the waters because the short-term humiliation is what the justification is worth more than the ongoing doubt for the rest of her life. But in that moment, most people don't think long-term. And like for repentance, that one moment of telling God I was wrong and I'm not going to do that anymore is much better than living with that guilt for the rest of your life. But a lot of times people don't do that because they'd rather, in that moment, they're, all they can think about is how they want to feel right now. So what Pete's getting at is that like she makes a choice now to suffer a penalty for her mistake, which in this case is to be humiliated and to go through this process that's so serious that other people see her and think, whoa, I'm not drinking any wine. You know, like It's a big deal. And then because she does that, um, she sort of just, she, she proves herself as being worthy of retaining the marriage. And God then allows him to get pregnant because that like reinforces that connection between her and her husband. So it's a, it's a matter of, another teaching is that this idea is like that God is doing anything he can to bring unity in their home, essentially. And God is doing anything possible to restore us to him. So I have another question. If the husband says in front of two witnesses, I don't want you to be secluded with Yochanan Doi. Doi. And then somebody sees her in seclusion with him, her status is Sotana immediately, right? But does the husband? But the husband still has the choice of whether he wants to take her to the temple or not, right? Right. Yeah. So if he chooses not to, what 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 happens? So if he chooses not to, if he chooses to, for whatever reason, disregard the infraction, um, is she still? Does she still have the status of Sota like forever? Or what happens? That's a good question. I think you it depends on if it's a Cohen or not. I think if it's a normal Israelite, this is what I remember though, this might not be accurate, but I'm pretty sure if it's a normal guy, he's allowed to do that. But if it's anybody who's not allowed to marry a woman who's had relations with another man, then the doubt exists and therefore he doesn't have the right. So he could never, he could no longer have relations with his own wife. Right, which is the way, yeah. when he, however she's a Sota, she, he's not allowed to do that. Right. Um, but if she's proven innocent, then fine. Exactly, but then she sees being a Sota. It, it is such a big deal that she would be deemed Sota that the, 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 
directly goes through pages and pages, encouraging the man not to even limit his wife by saying, don't seclude yourself with her, so that she can't mess up, she can't formally mess up. So it's because it's, it's a big deal. It's kind of like the, the, the whole making a nausea. Like they say, never say don't, these words in a row. Don't say these. <laughs> It says later in the tracting, because only 32 of the 49 painters are devoted to the Sotar book. The other one is devoted to the miscellaneous Holocaust, and the big section is devoted to the heifer whose neck is broken in the case of an unsolved murder. Between the towns. Pretty interesting stuff. Um, Which there's a connection actually to that halacha and um, Joseph and Yosef. Yeah. yeah. That was the last fortuitous oh, mm-hmm. portion. Yeah. But um, the connection in the tractate between the Sota and the the heifer's neck is broken is that they both are not done anymore. The heifer's neck is broken with the sages declared that not allowed to be done anymore because murder becomes rampant in the world. Mm-hmm. And you can only break the neck of a heifer when there's no one anywhere in the world who could possibly know who the murderer was. But because there are so many murderers now, mm-hmm. there's a possibility that someone actually might know who the murderer is. And it's the same with the Sota, that adultery has become so rampant in the world that you can't do the Sota ritual anymore. Even if there were a temple right now, mm-hmm. we don't do the Sota ritual. And especially so because our culture doesn't, isn't appalled by adultery. Mm-hmm. Because they're not appalled by it, we, we're not going to erase God's name mm-hmm. to make a big statement about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just not going to do it at all. Mm-hmm. So. And swimming around in the circle trying to hold on to the porcelain. Right, and hence the, uh, the whole little section at the end of your comment in which everything good has basically all died. It's true. Right. Right. Here is an interesting luck. I'm just going to throw it out there. I don't have any uh, teaching on it, but it's just so cool. I have to say it. Okay, in the teachings of the heifer whose neck is broken, in the Torah it says that if there's an unsolved murder in the middle of a field somewhere, slain with a sword, you take a measuring tape, you measure to the closest town that has elders. Then they come out, use a cleaver, and they, they basically cleave the back of a young heifer's neck. It's supposed to be emotionally appalling so that the people try to, if they had any details of the murder, they give them up immediately because this is so horrible what's happening. And then they wash their hands over the heifer and say, we didn't have anything to do with this. Okay. There's the Mishnah on 45b that says, what if the head is separated from the body? <laughs> Like of this of this corpse, do you measure from the head or do you measure from the body? You gotta know, right? Or else you go to the wrong city. So there's two opinions. Be a really good idea for the murderer is to do that on purpose, so that way it's much more complicated. So, so Rabbi Eliezer says, you take the head, you bring it to the body, and you measure from there. Rabbi Akiva says you take the body, <laughs> move it to the head, you and you measure from there. And the halacha follows Rabbi Akiva. Yeah. So 
the head to the body. No, no, the body to the head. And then they say, well, where do you actually measure on on the body? Where do you measure from? Rabbi Eliezer says you measure from the navel. <laughs> Center of the body. Rabbi Akiva says you measure from the nose. Center of the face. <laughs> Rabbi Akiva, measure from the nose. Very interesting. They have a, dis- a debate, and it's actually, it's called, it's about how the embryo develops. Because Rabbi Eliezer's reason for measuring from the navel is he says that the navel is the first thing that develops in, in the embryo, and that all life comes from there, the body from the navel, from the umbilical cord. And Rabbi Akiva says, that it all, the head forms first, and therefore we have to find the center of the head, which is the nose, and it goes from there. Science has disagreements about both, um, but we still accord with our big Hima. <laughs> so isn't that really interesting? There's probably some deep insight there about the body following the head. Well, I, well, I, thought, I, thought, <clears throat> I thought maybe it was gonna have something to do with the nose body. Yeah, because the lotus bone, that's why there's the tradition why we have the fourth meal on Shabbat, right after the Moshe Shabbat, um, because that meal, according to tradition, um, nourishes and strengthens the lotus bone. What's the lotus bone? The lotus bone is this particular bone at the base of the skull, kind of. And the loose bone is um, that there's a, there was discussion around you know at the resurrection how is God going to resurrect somebody whose body mm-hmm. has entirely you know decayed and literally kind of mm-hmm. turned into dust like how is that you know how does that happen and <clears throat> the discussion is that well the loose bone at the base of the skull does not decay. It does. It will never decay, and therefore the loose bone is the point um, at the time of, of the resurrection that Hashem will use the loose bone to build to it from there, re to re, you know, to reconstruct or whatever the right term is the person's body because the loose bone will always be there. So, so therefore the head is important because yeah. the head can include the base of the skull includes the loose bone. So that's kind of where I thought maybe it was going, but uh, that's pretty cool. I'll go ahead and make a little tiny comment then on the head thing now that I'm thinking about it because we just started the Tanya over a couple of days ago. And the Tanya in the last chapter was talking about how our godly souls are part of God himself and that they derive from God's wisdom as it were. So, like, basically his brain, God's brain. And the question is, um, the question is, when a man um, makes a child, it comes from the man's brain, and then the child develops in the woman's body and, and gives birth to this baby. And the only part that really resembles the origin of the, of the baby is the brain. Because it came from the man's brain initially, and traveled all the way down, and it's a, it's a baby's brain. And that's like the connection. And yet, 
what the man gave over to the woman included everything, so the whole body developed, including fingernails. And fingernails don't seem anything like the original thing in the man's brain. And it's the same with God. So God has all these souls come from him. Every soul comes from the same source. And yet we have people who are like great scholars, and we have people who are like the soul equivalent of fingernails. And they, they're barely receiving, you know, any vitality from God. <coughs> fingernails, you, you, you can cut them off, and it doesn't even hurt. You know, it's like there's, there's such a great disparity of levels here. You'd expect them to be from different levels of the soul, uh, different sources, I mean. But they're, in fact, all from the same place, God's wisdom, as it were. And so the question is brought down, how does the fingernail people connect to God? And, the, and the, the answer is they connect because they're connected to the body, and the body's connected to the head, and the head is the brain, and the brain is connected to, to that. And so we're talking about an organism of souls, and the lower ones have to connect through the head souls, which are the righteous men of the generation. And that's the answer to the question. Exactly. The answer to the question, how? It says in the Torah, cleave to God. And the sages ask, how do you cleave to God? It says elsewhere in the Torah, the God of the consuming fire. You can't cleave to a consuming fire. They say you cleave to the sages. The sages cleave to God. And that's the idea of your, you might be kind of low on the totem pole. So just cleave to the head. The head cleaves to God. And you're all still one. That's the idea. So I think it's interesting because of what we just read about the head. The body follows the head. You know, in measurements of an unsolved murder. Maybe relevant. Yeah, yeah. Good job. Good job. There's some like celebration. Not the church. The yeah. <laughs> I learned something interesting regarding the head and heart and anatomy. Um, and that's that, you know, a lot of people say, well, just follow your heart and your feelings are mm. emphasized a lot and all that. But um, Rabbi Gordon actually talked about this last week related to the Parsha of Joseph. I forget to mention him. I'll talk to you later. But the point is, like, human beings were supposed to function by our head. You know, our heart's a part of us, and we you know, should listen to what our head is above our heart. If you look at most animals, they're the same level, head and heart. You know, so one time weighs this, one time weighs this, and then you head and heart. But human beings, we should be able to use our heart, use our emotions intelligently. So we have an impulse towards something, evaluate it. And so what else you got for us, Pete? Well, I mean, nobody's talking. The what is the bitter waters made out of? So they take holy water from the temple basin, and they this is what the Catholics bring. Well, they write down the passage in the Torah that talks about the bitter waters, and then they erase it into the water, and then they sweep up some dirt from the temple floor, and they put that in the water. It's like an Israeli delicacy. It's amazing. What's the tea? What they like the first? 
But you can't. But you are not accepting that instance. Mm. You're not ever allowed to erase. Mm. So this is the only this is the only place where you're actually permitted to erase the mm -hmm. um, show. And she can actually assume the name of the show. That's weird. Yeah. It looks pretty hooky. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> most, most anything that involves heifers is pretty hooky too. Are there any, just out of curiosity, any references to the infant? Any records? They know it happens when you don't, <laughs> but they weren't talking about specific learning. Yeah, if you don't pass the test, you pretty much die immediately. Unless you've studied Torah. There's a and you can prolong your there's death an opinion, for two, three years. There's an opinion that your merit can push off your death. And the opinion right. is contested because Rabbi Shimon says that can't be true because if you could if that could happen, people are gonna stop trusting the efficacy of the test because someone's gonna drink it and they're gonna survive. And then we're not still gonna know if you don't still know if they're innocent or not. Exactly. And we're talking about like three years, years. of deteriorating health. So it's like does it really help or not? I, I believe the prevailing opinion, though, is that merit does hold your punishment in abeyance up to three years, but your health will continue to deteriorate until at the end of three years, max, you will die at a sudden death. But still, it's such a really of why you teach your daughter's Torah. <laughs> <laughs> right, because the idea of what merit could possibly hold it and it is keeping keeping going. Am I passing by? No, it's not easy. It's just a test. Test to understand. Here, here's the deal. I was thinking before I came here that I'd like to link all the things that are happening today into one. And so, it was a very big day, Sunday-wise. It's not really anymore, but. We lit the eight candles of Hanukkah. It was Rosh Chodesh to that, and we were finishing tracting soda. Mm -hmm. So I would like to link soda and Rosh Chodesh and Rosh Chodesh to Vet and Hanukkah. And soda has been linked to Hanukkah already, mm -hmm. successfully. Now, soda to Hanukkah to Rosh Chodesh is a pretty easy jump because Rosh Chodesh is the first mitzvah was ever given to the people right when they were coming out of Egypt, Exodus 12, first Christmas, says this month should be the first month for you. And the idea is now start keeping the months, you know, like every month declared a new month. And um, the idea of Rosh Chodesh is the moon, which represents Israel, goes up and down, you know, all the time, bigger and smaller. And right towards the end of the month, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. More and more darkness. Rosh Chodesh is when you look outside and you see just a sliver and you sanctify it. You say, this is the new month. Rosh Chodesh. And sanctified new month. This goes back to the same idea. 
as you try to find a little bit. So this is a teaching actually from Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar Meyer Breslau. It's all about finding the little little points, little points of good. And so he he says that Rosh Chodesh points to that is that there's always some little bit of good. And as soon as you find it, the little dot of light amid all the darkness, and you focus on it, which in the analogy is you bless Rosh Chodesh, then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what happens to the moon. As soon as you find it and you say, this is the new month, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, all the way up to the 15th. And then you repeat the whole story again. So, that's the story of Rosh Chodesh. But then, what about this month, Vet? Chaps, if you will. Chaps. <laughs> the month of Vet so is pretty much always within December, January. It's the coldest month of the year, traditionally. And the Talmud says something kind of interesting. It says, this is the month where bodies derive pleasure from bodies. Because it's so cold, people tend to get closer together, husband and wife, typically. We can only hope. Yeah. And so the idea is it's so cold, people get closer together, right? Bodies derive pleasure from bodies. But we know that everything everything mirrors. So anything in this world mirrors the upper world. So what they're saying is this month is teaching us something about the groom and bride in a supernal sense. Hashem and his people Israel, who are our groom and bride. And it says bodies derive pleasure from bodies. And so we got to take a step back and look at us and God and figure out what's the body here. So with us, it's very obvious we have a soul and we have this body, and the soul enlivens the body. And so we have a spiritual service and a physical service. So our spiritual service is like where we're um, trying to create feelings of love and awe of God, you know? We're trying to um, subdue our evil inclination and our evil desires, evil passions, etc. This is all spiritual service. It's all done kind of like with our soul. Physical service is where we actually deal with physical stuff. Physical. We wrap to fill it, we put on tzitzit, or we um, eat something, right? Physical stuff dealing with the physical world. So, we understand our body and how we can serve God with our body. But the Talmud said this is a month where bodies derive pleasure from bodies. So that means we have to inter interface with God's body, not his so quote-unquote soul. And so what's that? Like, does, does God have a body or a soul? No. doesn't have a body or a soul. That's, that's silly, because he, he doesn't have definition like that. So how do, we, how do we go about this? We say there's God as, it, as he is himself, his essence, and there's the way we perceive him. Right, so God's essence would be like God's body, but then this the spiritual ideas that we perceive of God would be like God's soul, like what, how we perceive it, how He enlivens the world and stuff like that. And so we have a lot of spiritual ideas about God, about His omnipotence and His omnipresence and how He, you know, controls the world and directs the world, providence and the divine wisdom through the Torah and stuff like that. We have all these spiritual ideas of God, those all relate to the spiritual side of God. But God's essence isn't that. Because by definition, because we know God is completely unknowable, undefinable, 
if that were his essence, we wouldn't be able to perceive it, right? So the fact that we're able to perceive that God runs the world or that he's everywhere and stuff like that, I mean, that must, we must not be talking about him as he is himself. We're just talking about how he's manifested himself, right? Right. So, you look at our body, and, we, and you look at this whole world, this physical world, everything in this world, us included, is kind of saying, I exist, I am, is what the whole world is saying. Because none of this looks like uh, it's a spiritual reality. It looks like it exists independently of anything else. And we feel, even though we were born, that we exist independently of anything else. That we have independent existence. So we feel like this whole world appears to exist by itself. And we philosophize and we believe that God is enlivening the world and he's keeping it going. But everything in this world is just shouting this egocentrism of I exist, I, I don't need anything else. Stuff like that. And the question in Hasidus is where does that feeling come from? Because angels don't feel that. All the spiritual realities don't feel I exist. They feel my source is God and I'm just an expression of God. But we don't feel that. We feel we, that we exist independently. And so the idea is that that kind of proves that this whole world, the physical stuff of this world, is created directly by God's essence. Because God says, I am. God doesn't have any um, source. He is an independent creation, and so only he could bestow those feelings directly upon the world. And so that's what we have. We have those feelings. So the idea is that if you want to use your body to get close to God's body, the idea is you do physical mitzvahs with physical things, because the physical world represents God's essence. And another proof of that is that we don't feel it. We don't have any um, we don't have any like high emotions by default when we put on tzitzit or anything. We don't feel like we're one with God's essence right now. We just feel like we put on some strings. And we don't we don't feel that kind of stuff ever. That's that's supposed to be like that though. Because the feelings are spiritual. And that would be serving God with our spiritual side. And so nowadays so in the in the uh, in the month of Tibet, the tenth of Tibet, is when um, is when the Babylonian exile kind of kicked off. I think they started uh, sieging the walls at that point or something, and it kind of has gone downhill from there. Even though they returned from that exile and built the second temple, the second temple lacked a lot of things that the first temple did did, did have. So it lacked a lot of stuff. I think it even the Shekinah wasn't even present there. Um, <coughs> and prophecy had ceased by then. And so so it's just been a, a downhill since since that first tenth of Tibet when the Babylonian exile started kicking off. And so we're kind of in still this extremely cold winter of exile. The idea is we're kind of in a giant Tibet. And when we don't feel those feelings of perceiving God and receiving God's prophecy and being able to go to the temple and experience God's presence, then we have to fall back on 
the basics of a relationship. The basics of a relationship is physical intimacy. And the physical intimacy is our body and God's body. And that's allegorical, but we're talking about us physically doing things with physical objects. Mitzvot, Shreya Paul, stuff with this farm. So we should do more Mitzvot in Tibet. Yeah, yeah. You should focus on physical Mitzvot. Right. Yeah. But even eating, if you eat right, like you say a bracha before you eat, and then you use the food to to uh, serve God, then you're using the physical food as a mitzvah. So eating is a really easy way to do God's will, etc. I like doing that one. <laughs> <laughs>
Have mercy, Adonai, our God of Israel, your people, on Jerusalem, your city, and on Zion, the resting place of your glory, upon your altar and upon your temple. Rebuild Jerusalem and the city of your hol the holiness, even in our days. Bring us up into it in gladness and its rebuilding. Let us eat from its fruit and be satisfied with its goodness and bless you upon it in holiness and purity. For you, Adonai, are good and do good to all, and we thank you for the land and for the fruit of the vine. Blessed are you, Adonai, for the land and for the fruit of the vine. Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who creates numerous living things with their deficiencies for all that you have created with which to maintain the life of your being. Blessed is he, the life of the worlds. Amen. I think it's a big mistake that a lot of us used to, maybe some of us still do, um, deride the, the Talmud. Because where we came from, a lot of people don't think it came from God. Um, some people do, some people don't. Whatever the case might be, everybody seems to want to just ding it. But I have yet to meet a man who dings the Talmud, who's actually taking the time to read it. Mm. So we should probably spend a little bit of time reading it. You can get it for free. You can see it online. Chabad will give it to you uh, on the website. Um, and I'm just so proud of you. And uh, thank you for the encouragement to read through this uh, tractate. This this is a good one. We should all read Gatine together. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm a day behind already. Are we starting tomorrow? Tomorrow, yeah. yeah. Tomorrow good. Morning. good. Um, Greg volunteer. I want to thank you for coming. Uh, it's great seeing all of you and being with you. Mm -hmm. uh, you're welcome to stay, have some wine, sit on the couch, something softer. Um, but let me bless my son. Father, I thank you for Peter, I thank you for Laura, and I certainly thank you for Dove. And I just uh, pray that you'll bless Peter for not only studying the Talmud, not only learning the Talmud, taking the time to teach the time. I'm grateful for that, Father. I ask you to bless him, make him fruitful, multiply, all that good stuff.